You're listening to a podcast from 702. And today's masterclass is on tech-enabled parenting. So I would love for all of you to give us a call on 11 883 SMS 31702, the WhatsApp line 072-7021-702, and your tweets at M at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons. You don't have to be a parent to participate in this conversation. Do listen in and there might be some key takeaways for you as well. But for those of you, especially those with the smaller kids, ooh, there is so much to talk about. So let's get ready for 702 Masterclass. I am so excited for this conversation. Yes, you know why I'm excited. But what I'm more excited about is the fact that we are talking to the author of a book that I went and bought called Weaning Sense. This was recommended to me by my lactation specialist. And she said to me, you know, prior to introducing my little one to solids, she said, please read this book because there is a psychology around transitioning to solids. There's so much information. It's not just a book that tells you how to blend food and to not uh, have salt in it because baby's too small. It's so much more than that. So I'm so excited to welcome onto the show Meg Fora, who is a childcare expert and best-selling parenting author. Meg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Willa Bukhila. Lovely to be here. Your book is just fantastic. I have not completed it as of yet, but I loved, you know, just going through the parts about the personalities of the little one. And it made it so much easier in the journey of weaning him onto solids, of which we are still doing. Um, but I just love how detailed it is and all the background information and how, for me, a key takeaway was how it's not just about the food. You are teaching your child how they need to, you know, assert themselves and how you're going to respond to them is going to teach them um, about, you know, relationships with people and those kind of things. I absolutely love that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that was the big thing is that weaning is kind of just a small picture of actually the bigger picture of what of how children interact with the world in general and how they form relationships and impact sleep and all sorts of things. So we did try to bring that across. And uh, you actually are the founder of Infant Sensory Integration Training, which means that, I mean, you really are quite qualified for the conversation that we're about to have. Yes, yeah, I'm an occupational therapist actually by training originally at UCT, um, but my passion has always been on with little babies and my speciality is sensory integration. So um, the, the ISIT that you referred to there, that's actually my professional organization where I train other therapists to do what I do. And so that's just one piece of the puzzle. And then obviously the books are the way that I, I kind of deliver information to mm. parents. So now we live in quite a digitally connected world. And some might think that parenting is easier than 20 years ago with the advancement and access to technology. My mom calls it um, Google parenting because sometimes we argue that she'll say do this and I'll say let me check online so she gets quite upset at times about that that you guys are Google parents and we've raised so many children but I mean would you say that the access to technology has made things easier or do you think actually it's made it harder because it's more overwhelming that we're inundated with so much 
It's a mixture of both. I mean, interestingly, the parents who are becoming parents right now are the very first generation of digital natives. In other words, by the time you were born, the internet existed and, and you know, apps existed. So this is the first generation that actually access almost everything digitally. So they are natives. And that's, that's an important shift because the way that um, this generation of parents access information is very different. So, you know, kind of 50 years ago, you accessed information through books and through your mother. And then um, more recently, kind of 25 years ago, we did do it a little through the Internet, but we didn't have social media in those days. Now, my son is 23, so um, I was part of that generation, which was a pre-social media generation. The difficulty now is that the information that is uh, received is often through or, or, or sought out is often through social media as a kind of filtering system. So it's what your friend says or what you see on your social feed. And I think that's where it becomes difficult because you are often on social media, as we know, fed information that you know that, that you seek out and you see more of the same. Um, and so what happens there is we get painted this incredibly rosy picture of what parenting is all about. And you see these women with their bodies bouncing back after three weeks and their babies sleeping through the night. And it's all so beautiful. And then, of course, there's the reality. And I think um, I think in that respect, it is harder for parents. So although the um, information is at their fingertips, so is the pressure at their fingertips. And so um, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, a two-edged sword. And, and I think you've hit the nail on the head because... Um, it's not just social media. I mean, for me, I, I never thought that the social media platform that I'd get parenting advice from would be TikTok because there's so many mothers on TikTok who I think are a bit more honest and you have a lot of um, the pediatricians as well sharing information there. I would have thought that I'd be getting info on the different uh, mommy Facebook groups, um, but TikTok actually has so many professionals but also moms who are completely honest and real about the parenting experience yeah absolutely and you know in, in about 2007 i think it was i actually owned a business called baby sense and at the time we actually started one of the first facebook pages business pa facebook pages actually in the world we were the biggest parenting um, facebook page for a sh very short period of time and then obviously everybody caught up and overtook us at the time but at the time it was around facebook and then it shifted onto instagram but you're absolutely right in the last year the shift has been towards um tiktok which i mean if you're not a digital native you're probably not even on tiktok and um so yeah there's a lot of information coming through on tiktok now okay so let's talk about now a baby's sensory personality and why it's important to have an idea of what your baby's uh, sensory personality is in the context of technology. Yeah, so we all take in sensory information all the time. Our brains are incredible at taking in sensory information through actually eight senses. We learn about the five senses at school and then the additional three are the sense of movement or the vestibular sense, the sense of proprioception and the sense of interoception, which is messages from your um, organs inside your body. And this sensory information comes in all the time at any given moment. I mean, for those listeners who are driving in a car, they're getting a complete bombardment of sensory information coming through now. Mm. And our brains are incredible at being able to filter out the sensory information. So if it's not important, you won't even notice it. You know, if you've passed that billboard 300 times, you won't even read what's on it. Or mm. when you put your clothes on this morning, you'll, you would have felt them for a split second. And now you're not even feeling them until I mention it. And now, of course, you're feeling them again. Yes. <laughs> and that... And that ability to um, to filter out sensory information is called habituation. And what the brain does is, in an optimal world, it habituates a lot of information so that we're not overstimulated. But what happens is the individual human brains actually filter this information slightly differently. So you, you, the way you filter information will be different from your husband. So. Mm. 
as an example, in our marriage, my husband is a sensory seeker. So he, he doesn't filter, he filters information so well that he has to seek out more and more and more. So he'll throw himself down a mountain on a mountain bike, you know, and that, that'll, that'll kind of float his boat. Whereas I'm what's called a slow to warm up personality. And that means that um, my filter for sensory information is much lower. So I sense a lot more information and I take in a lot more and therefore can be more overwhelmed and overstimulated. And so we kind of get these two buckets uh, um, of, of um, sensory profiles. The one is people who under respond to sensory information or don't get enough in. And then you get the people who over-respond or get too much in. And then within these two kind of opposite ends, there forms two personalities in each. So your four sensory personalities are the slow to warm up and sensitive personalities are those people who perceive sensory information at a much greater volume and therefore are more sensitive. So those are your sensitive and slow to warm up. And then your, um, your more, your less sensitive are your social butterfly and your settled babies and, um, or people. And they tend to not take in all the sensory information. Now, Finding out what your sensory personality is is important, and you can actually find that out on my website, which is megfora.com, or as you have done in the Weaning Sense book. But it's more important to then take that information and to understand how that has a bearing on behavior, development, weaning, sleep, and so on. And that's really what, what I've made a lot of my life's work, is helping parents to understand like, why is it that the one toddler throws temper tantrums mm. every time you try and put their socks on, and the next one is completely laid back and sleeps through the night and is, is happy-go-lucky. What is it that actually makes these sensory personalities so different? And how do we understand our children and their behavior in the context of these personalities? So can you just repeat those personalities again, just so that, um, you know, especially for the parents that are listening, that haven't had an opportunity to read your book, if we can have a summary of, if you're saying the social butterfly, what is a social butterfly and what are those key markers that a parent can identify? Oh, this is what we're dealing with. And not just a parent identifying their child, possibly in themselves as well. Yes. Okay. So let's start with the social butterfly. So the social butterfly classically has quite a high filter for sensory information. In other words, a lot can be going on in their world that they don't actually even really notice. And so what the social butterfly does is they start to seek out more information because they love sensory information. They love social engagement, but their senses don't always let all the information through. And so they become what we call sensory seekers and social seekers. So they seek out sensory uh, moments in every opportunity. So a mom or dad would know that they had a social butterfly because when you walk through the shops, you're walking through pick and pay or, or woolies and they stop everybody in their tracks to smile at them and yes. to engage with them. So they're very engaging little ones. They are really cute and they often are um, developmentally somewhat precocious. In other words, they have their milestones. They meet them a little earlier than other kitties. So mm. they might smile at like four weeks instead of six weeks and they might walk at 10 months instead of 12 months. So they tend to be developmentally precocious. They tend to um, be absolutely exhausting. So a mom of a social butterfly or dad of a social butterfly will hit six o'clock in the evening and just think, I can't actually do I another I honestly think that that is me at the moment. <laughs> when you say that absolutely exhausting, it's like um, my son is a little busybody and he yeah. constantly needs to be doing something. He, he rarely just yeah. sits and chills out. He constantly needs to be putting something in his mouth, touching things. Yeah, okay. I, I've exactly. figured out my child's personality is the social butterfly. 
Exactly. And they really are exhausting. I mean, they don't like sitting. I mean, he's not the baby that you would pop on the lounge, in the lounge floor with two toys and kind of be able to go on and make yourself a cup of tea. He wants to come with you because he wants to see what you're doing. Yes. What you're doing is much more interesting. And he wants um, to feel textures and he wants to touch and he's yes. constantly uh, requires engagement. Okay, so that's the social exactly. butterfly. What is the next one? So the next one is the settled baby. Now, the settled baby has the same brain profile in that they have very high filters for sensory information. So not everything gets through. But instead of seeking it out, they actually act in accordance with that threshold. So they actually don't seek out information and they tend to be developmentally slightly slower. So um, I actually have one of, had one of these little ones. They love sitting on the floor, watching the world go by. They're quite content. They classically sleep through very early, much earlier than other little ones, because they don't perceive hunger signals and they don't perceive um, world signals while they're sleeping. They really do sleep more deeply. They are very easy eaters, so they tend to um, breastfeed easily, move onto bottles easily, move onto solids easily, and eat just in general are very easy. And they tend to be actually just pretty easygoing little ones. Um, and as I said, with slightly slower developmental milestones because they're just so chilled. Um, and if you have one of those, I mean, I've always called them con babies because they con you into having another one after that, which is what <laughs> happened to me. <laughs> I love that. So you thought it was, oh, it's not that bad. <laughs> so then you yeah, get I got it next. right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I like that one. So, okay, what is the third uh, profile? So then on the more sensitive side, the first profile is the sensitive baby. And those little ones are really tricky. They only make up about 5 to 10% of babies. They would very often end up in my practice as an OT because they're difficult. They really don't sleep well. They often don't take to um, breastfeeding very well. But then if they do take to breastfeeding, they don't transition onto bottles easily. When they start solids, they gag and they don't just stop. They don't stop gagging. You know, you always think they're choking because they're always gagging on something. They just, they are more tricky. Um, they don't like novelty. They don't like new social, social situations. Um, and they just tend to be colicky for a lot longer. You know, traditional colic finishes at 12 weeks. Um, often your sensitive baby still has colic by 14 or 16 weeks. So they really do give their parents a tough time. And, you know, on my sleep course, I run a sleep course where moms can, um, and I, th I think we've offered the one for you to join our sleep course, but I have a sleep, online sleep course that I run for moms to get little ones sleeping through the night. And um, I once had a mom who was on there and she actually just ended up in tears on this course because she said for the first time she understood, she always thought she was a bad mother, but now she understands that actually she's got a really tricky little one. And so these sensitive babies really do kind of really give us a you know, little bit of a raw deal um, mm. and, and as parents. Okay. And then the final personality. So the final personality is also sensitive. It's called the slow to warm up personality. They're also sensitive, but they actually tend to warm up after a while. So what they do is they tend to really like to be in control and they, they tend to be control freaks. They like things to be done their way. But as long as everything runs according to their plan, they're actually very happy and social and very engaged. And so an example of a slow to warm up would be they don't interact happily and gregariously in new social settings. But if they're at home with a mom and a granny and a nanny who they know really well, then they can look like a social butterfly. So mm. they actually look like social butterflies when they're in their comfort zones. But they um, also call them Velcro babies. They like to stick to their moms if they go out to a party or, yes. you know, they're very, they're very clingy because they want the world to be predictable and, and mom is predictable. So they so enjoy they often, familiarity. 
Exactly. And so that would play out in weaning as an example. You know, in the weaning sense book, we talk about that where actually they don't like the new flavors. They don't like the new, um, you know, kind of uh, textures. They, they get really stuck in a certain type of food and don't like to move off it. Um, so they are a little bit more tricky when it comes to weaning. Okay. So now that we have an idea of the different sensory personalities, we're going to now have to talk about how to empower the parents to meet their unique needs, particularly when it comes to technology technology and to see what is appropriate and what is not. So we're going to take your calls 011-883-0702, your SMSs 31702, your tweets at Relebukhile M at Radio 702, the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. How do you relate to this conversation? How do you incorporate technology when it comes to your parenting? We are in a conversation on today's Masterclass with Meg Forer. 702 Masterclass. Today's Masterclass, we're speaking to Meg for a childcare expert and best selling parenting author. And we have just come out of discussing identifying your baby's sensory personality, of which there are four. Now we're going to jump onto how to empower yourself with the tools that you need um, to adapt your parenting to meet your child's unique needs. So maybe let's start, let's. Um, touch on Meg the, the the first part of the conversation which is what do you need to consider when it comes to technology before even you know applying these new thoughts and understanding their personality and and your needs onto your child yeah so look I think there are ways that you want to adjust your parenting and a lot of it is just understanding the way that they behave differently um, but each you know each parenting challenge so if we take for instance crying sleep feeding and development as four different facets of, of the way children develop. Each of those um, children with different sensory personalities will behave differently. And I think it's small adjustments to the way that you, you for instance, put them down to sleep at night. So, for instance, you'll, I mean, let's look at sleep and, and the sleep challenges and how that would play out. So um, your social butterfly needs a huge amount of sensory information in order to actually sleep well at night. And so they need a very sensory rich daytime schedule. So that means lots of movement, lots of engagement, um, and particularly actually really a lot of movement. That, that That's the biggest thing for social butterflies is that their brain needs movement in the day in order to sleep well at night. So that's an example of how we change the sensory world according to the personalities. In terms of technology and babies, you know, I think on the whole, most babies shouldn't be watching technology. So, you know, the, you, right at the beginning of our conversation, we spoke about um, the, the impact of technology on parenting, mm. but there's also the impact of technology on our little ones. And so, you know, the American Association of Pediatrics says absolutely no technology for children under the age of one, of 12 months. And that's based on some quite, quite significant research that's been done now of the negative impact of technology on babies' brains. And we're not just talking about watching TV here. We're also talking about playing on apps for babies. And, you know, babies are so bright and parents get so proud of them because, I mean, like an eight-month-old can learn to swipe on, a, on an iPad screen and we think, wow, they're so clever. But actually, what it's doing to the human brain is really, really toxic. Um, in fact, the human oh. brain needs... You know what you're, you're scaring me with mm. is the fact that, um, especially with COVID... There are so many video calls that happen and FaceTimes now. Um, I mean, I have a niece who's 11 months old. My child is seven months old. The amount of time that they spend in front of a phone screen, you know, video calling parents and uh, uh, grandparents and family, um, that for me is such a concern But because we're so limited with our visits. 
Yeah, so it's quite interesting. I like to separate technology into two camps. So we've got the technology which uh, which is non-responsive. So in other words, it's, it's very passive. So that's something like watching a television um, episode or, um, or, or watching a, a YouTube um, you know video. That that would be unresponsive. The baby would have no social interaction, and so they would a learn very little from that situation because um, the way that the brain works is that they literally don't learn in the in that scenario. But then you've got social situations. Now, um, the, the Harvard Center for the Developing Child has come up with an amazing video um, which looks at what's called serve and return. And that's that when a baby does something and they're very cute, the mum or the dad does something back. So the baby serves and the mother returns, kind of like a tennis analogy. Now, that is very, very important for human learning. And you will not get that when you're passively watching TV because the person who's on the television screen can't, is not reacting with the child. Having said that, when you're on a Zoom call or a FaceTime call um, and there is some social interaction, like granny's far away and little one says, you know, goo goo, and the granny says, oh, go, go, you're saying my name or whatever it is, you know, immediately there is some reinforcement. There's some serve and return happening mm. there. So while I still am not a fan for technology on the whole, small amounts of technology that have a social component are not as toxic as, for instance, watching something passively on a screen. So we don't need to be too concerned about the blue light on a phone, for example. So that's another story. So, so there, there's so many reasons why tech is toxic. And the blue light is something that does impact as well. So one of the magic neurotransmitters that is, um, tr- that is released just before we go to sleep is melatonin. It's released from the pineal gland, which is a, like a little pea-sized gland in our brain. Now, that pineal gland only releases the melatonin in the absence of blue light. And so that's why it's released as, you know, kind of the sun sets. And so it's very, very important for sleep. Now, what we do, particularly if we expose our children to blue light in the two hours before bedtime, is we impact on the pineal gland's ability to actually release that melatonin, and even worse in the middle of the night. So um, for that reason, the blue screen is not fabulous. You know, I mean, there are a number of... There are a number of small reasons why, um, I suppose quite large reasons why technology is bad. You know, I've spoken about the serve and return. I've spoken mm. about the pineal gland and the, and the melatonin and the blue light. But there are actually other reasons as well. So all of these things, when you compound them together, mean that technology is really not okay for that developing brain. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we've established sort of um, this this thing to know that before the age of one, ideally let's keep babies away from screens of any kind, unless of course there is some type of engagement which is encouraged, but to be sensitive to the fact that two hours before they go to bed, uh, we want to sort of protect their minds and get them sleep ready. Now, how do you start applying? And this is the question that we're going to go to when we come back. The question we need to ask ourselves is, what do you do with the information of knowing your child's personality and how to handle the technology when it uh, goes to your parent parenting? So this is the masterclass. We will continue after the Eyewitness News headline. 702 Masterclass. And in our masterclass for today, we are talking tech-enabled parenting. And we're speaking to Meg Fora, who is childcare expert and best-selling parenting author. Now, Meg, uh, before we went into the headlines and took a break, we were about to get into the part of now that you know your child's personality, now that you know where you should stand on technology, especially if your child is still a baby, how do you now start to incorporate the two? 
Yeah, so look, I mean, I don't think the technology is all evil at all. Um, I think that it needs to be used cleverly. So so let's start with where is appropriate and, and what, what should we do as parents. So um, I do think that we have access to information in a way that other generations didn't have. And that means that we have to, uh, through technology, on a digital level. And that means that we need to actually take in our, into our own hands a good filtering system to understand what's sensible and what isn't. Um, so use use websites, use social media carefully. Um, one of the things that I did, um, you know, I've written the eight books, is I took the eight books and I put them into an app, and the app is called ParentSense. So that's that's the my, my parenting application. And what we did there is we took all of the science that, you know, kind of, you know, that, we, that we know about parenting, we, that we know about the sensory personalities, that we know um, when children should meet their milestones, we know how to get little ones to sleep through the night as an example, and we put all of this information into, into an app called ParentSense. Now, using a voice like that is a more sensible way of accessing information than just kind of, you know, trying to filter through it yourself. So I think the idea is use technology, but use it carefully and use it sparingly and use it with, sen- you know, sensibly rather than kind of um, spending your life on it. That would be one thing. The second thing is that parents need to make sure that they're not burying their heads in their technology at the expense of actually engaging with their little ones. And mm. I think that's a big challenge that we all have. You know, we, we, we're watching our TikToks, we're watching our um Instagram feed, whatever it is, and life is actually going on on the outside of that, and that's our child trying to engage with us and trying to socialize with us. So, you know, and I think one of the risks is that when little children, I spoke about serve and return before half past, but when little children serve, in other words, they engage with you, if you miss it because your head is buried in your technology, you can end up interrupting that that kind of rally that goes on, to use another tennis term. So, you know, you don't respond to your child, so you don't teach them about social interaction. So I think that the cautionary message around technology needs to be balanced. Yes, use it. Use it sensibly. Make sure you're using the right technology, but always make sure that you are engaging with your child as well. And I think maybe also for us to consider what is your intention with the tech you are using? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and that's all around. I mean, we, we talk about intentional and conscious parenting. Um, you know, we need to think about what we're doing. We need to measure ourselves. And, you know, as particularly when you get into older children, I know that many of our, our listeners will actually have older children. You know, they model the way that they behave on the way that we behave, you know. So if we are, you know, consuming an enormous amount of technology, if we're not socially interacting, if we are using our tech around the table, for instance, which at, at mealtimes, which for me is a major bugbear because mealtimes are a very, very precious time with children, um, you know, to actually engage on the day. Um, we're setting the wrong, ex- wrong example if we use our tech in those times. And I think you've raised such an important point is, um, you know, the part of children being mirrors of their parents and um, for parents to just be conscious of the fact that your children are going to emulate what you do and not what you tell them to do. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and so modeling for them becomes very important. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit before the break about, um, you know, how much and, and should little ones and, and what should they be using. So the, the one when we start to talk about the principles for children using technology, the one piece of it is curate the content, which I spoke about before the break. And that was mm. make sure that what they're doing has some social interaction. But the other piece, and I use two C's, so I use curate the content and curb the time. And so the other piece of the puzzle is how much time are they actually spending on tech? Um, so the, as I said before, the American Association of Pediatrics says no technology under one. Um, and then after that, we start to talk about very small increments. And I like to use the rule of thumb of just 10 minutes um, per year of the child's age. So for instance, if they're, if they're one, 
just 10 minutes a day mm. is enough tech. Um, so it's just watching how much they're doing. And part of that is watching how much you're using as well. And that doesn't include television. That's talking things like tablets um, and and any and phones. No, it does include te- television. I, I lump them all together. Technology is technology. You know, I think um, tablets and phones are somewhat better because there you've got the social interaction. TV, there's no social interaction. So, mm. you know, TV, there's just, there's a myriad of studies on TV and, and the impact on language development in children, on the impact in gross motor skills, on sleep, and also on obesity. And so for those four reasons, you know, TV really shouldn't be watched by little ones. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the parent that's possibly in the car going or, or listening at home, thinking to themselves, what else am I supposed to do realistically? If mm. babies or, or my child is on my clock and I just need a good 20 minutes or 30 minutes yeah. to get into something, um, what is the alternative? Yeah, so I'm a mom of three. I'm, I'm a busy mom of three. I've, I've, I've had businesses all my life, so I've, I've always worked from home. So, you know, I know how life happens and I know that we just need... 10 minutes to wash the newborn when we've got a toddler, for instance, or, you know, make a meal or just clean up or just have a shower. And so we engage the the babysitter, the technical babysitter, which is usually TV. So I, I get it. Um, I think that this conversation, and, and I mean, I, honestly, I've had this conversation many, many times, um, you know, in, in media. And at every point, I try not to create guilt because that's something that's very close to my heart is not creating more guilt than moms need, already had put on themselves. Um, but I think the point of a conversation like this is to increase awareness because sometimes it's a slippery slope. You know, you start off with the best intentions and before you know it, you know, your child was only watching 10 minutes of TV. Now they're watching three hours of TV. And it's almost like a reality check of going, okay, hold on. Let's reset. We're going to go back to the 10 minutes a day. And then we'll, you know, we, we know we're going to go down a slippery slope, but let's always try and reset at the, at the you know, gold standard and work from there. Because mm, I'm not sure if, um, you know, when we have a conversation like this, how inclusive it is of all parts of um, the community when it comes to parenting, that realistically, are people able to parent with only 10 or 20 or 30 minutes of television a day? Is that realistic? And if, if they're saying, if we're saying, yes, it's realistic, what are the alternatives that we are offering? Realistically, you know, from some of the parents that I know, they desperately need those 15 minutes to tend to something else. And the television is the babysitter or else they literally need to be walking behind their child and checking that they're not in any danger or getting up to mischief. Yeah, I mean, it's, I know, it's a good point. So, I mean, I think of the first thing, which is a very valid point that you said is you don't want the child to, um, to harm themselves. So the first thing is baby-proof your house as much as possible because then you're not having to follow them around. And then create spaces where they can actually get up to anything they want. So whether it is kind of closing off, you know, a, a section of a room with, with, a, with a fence, like a, like a very big playpen type thing, mm. and then popping some toys in there, you know, so you know that they're safe and they've got some toys to play with while you can just quickly do something else. You know, any form of, of engagement other than tech is actually better than technology. And then keep the technology for when you know that you absolutely have to have them in front of tech. Um, but just as much as possible, keep it limited. You know, also when they get into the older age groups, you can start to enroll them in play groups, as an example. And um, we have a 
business called PlaySense, where we have just six little ones with an au pair in a home situation. And that's a really nice example of how they can get their social interaction. They are being monitored, but the costs are being shared between parents. So that kind of cost sharing of nannies and having very small groups of children with, with one carer is a much better scenario than having them, you know, babysat by a TV, for instance. I would like to just jump to the part of now the, the bigger children when it comes to technology, because we now have your Xboxes and you know, kids having cell phones, it's the ages are becoming younger and younger because parents want to monitor where they are and all of those things. What are your thoughts on the the appropriate age for things like phones and Xboxes? Um, you know, would you say it's appropriate for a seven year old to be having multiple devices to be doing various things? Yeah, again, you know, and, and, and there's another risk. So I mentioned at the beginning a, a number of the risks with technology, but one of them is that games in particular are actually built with hooks, so addiction hooks. And that's how, that's how gaming businesses make games so sticky, is that they literally put in things that make, that, that release a little bit of a neurotransmitter that make you, you know, feel good. And so you end up with, with children who are, who become addicted to technology, particularly for gaming, because, uh, you know, that's where you get addicted. And it's, it's the same with social media. You get that little buzz as, as you get, you know, as you get that new Instagram message or that Snapchat or whatever it is. So, um, you know, I think that addiction network that is used for, you know, to hook children in needs to be watched by parents. Um, what often happens with kids is when they've been on games in particular or they have been um, watching a lot of technology is they actually become increasingly grumpy and irritable. And that's really, you know, you'll see as you stop the game, they're just grumpy and irritable. And so and that's because they've lost that addiction, that kind of addiction hook. Um, so you do need to watch it, you know, and, you know, I know that this is a tough conversation and I know that there'll be parents who are saying this is not realistic for my child. But I think as a parent, it's our responsibility to be aware of these things, you know, and there is such a thing as an addiction to technology in young children. And it, and those addictions come from games and social media. And I think about the fact that, um, you know, people are living in apartments. They don't have an outdoor area for their children or it's just not safe because we live in South Africa and we understand the realities of um, just having your child and yourself maybe be outside. But ideally, we would want them to be nature running around, um, um, just pushing their motor sensory skills and all of those things. But it ends up being just this device that's making a noise and entertaining your child and giving you a break. So uh, we will continue this conversation on this masterclass where we are speaking specifically about tech-enabled parenting. And we're not saying technology is evil. We're saying how can we use it in a positive way or how can we limit it if it isn't so great for the child? Give us a call on 11 883 SMS 31702, tweet at M at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons and the WhatsApp line 072 1702. 702 Masterclass. It is nine minutes to three o'clock and we're continuing our masterclass on tech-enabled parenting with Meg Fora, who is a childcare expert and best-selling parenting author. And uh, Meg, we're going to take a call. We've got Debocho in Baku. Hi, Debocho. Hi, Debocho. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. And you? Uh, it's, uh, it's like you guys are talking exactly like, uh, about me and my children, you mm. know. And when and, and, uh, you, you forget who I am. The last time I spoke to you, the Brazilian, I like, I'm devil for this and that. I took, I'm a member of Samro. Yes, devil. I know exactly which devil I'm talking to. Nice to hear from you. How are you? Welcome back. Thank you so Welcome much. Back. 
Yes, you know, my kids wake up in the morning. Literally, uh, uh, they go to bed after 10 since the school holiday. And they, when I get up, uh, my little one is also February 7. It's already on his laptop or tablet. Trust me, the whole day, in between you eat, no going outside. Then he goes at night uh, to bed around after 10. When I have to say, guys, no, 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 guys, enough now. I mean, what's wrong with this technology? I love it. Because of the kids are savvy, they are smart. However, I must, they must get the sun outside. Mm. So are you, would you like Meg to advise on what you can do to get your parents off of their devices? That's why, you know, she sounds like she's talking exactly about my children, you know? Mm. Meg, uh, would you come in here? Yes. Yeah, so look, I mean, uh, the, the easiest way... And, and I mean, I understand, Debecho, this is, this is a very common problem, but the easiest thing to do, and I know this is hard to say in holidays, is to have a three-day tech detox. And by that, you just go cold turkey because when you try and pull it back little bit by little bit, you end up actually trying, you know, you, you don't fully break that addiction cycle. And so it, it is almost harder. So my recommendation to parents is actually to pull back and for three days, maybe do it over the weekend, um, over this weekend coming up. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, absolutely no technology. It's an absolute cold, you know, cold turkey. And then on Monday, you start with periods of time in which they're allowed to watch technology. Like say, for instance, no technology before eight o'clock in the morning and after six o'clock in the evening. So you just have like, just like we put onto our, on our Apple devices, you can actually limit nighttime use. So you have nothing around sleep times, which is a good idea. And then you have another rule, like nothing at mealtimes because meal, mealtimes are an essential touch base in families. We know that that really is a big predictor for whether or not children are delinquent later on is whether or not they've had those touch bases with their families at mealtimes. It's critical times. And then you say, right, in between breakfast and lunch, you're going to have this many hours or this many minutes, whatever it is, and in between lunch and supper, it's that much. And then if they want extra time, you can actually use it as a reward. So if they tick certain boxes and let's say they unpack the dishwasher or whatever it is that they're doing, you then can say, right, now you can get an extra 10 minutes. Oh, that cold turkey sounds rough. And I mean, realistically, many children feel like devices being taken away from them is punishment. And that's because some parents do use it as punishment. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on um, in the parenting space using take, uh, taking away of technology as punishment? Yeah, I think that's fine. I always think that if, if that's your child's currency, there's nothing wrong with taking it away. So in other words, if that's the thing that they love the most and you take it away, then they'll really feel it. So I have no problem with that and with using it as a reward as well. So I don't have any problems with that. Um, but you know, you've got to replace, and, and this is something you said just now. What do we replace it with? You can't just take something away and leave a void. You've got to replace it with something constructive. And so it, that means you've got to replace it with social interaction, which for, for moms and dads, that's going to mean a walk to the park or, you know, going down to the beach or playing outside for a little bit or setting up a, a, a challenge for them to do, like a puzzle. So you do have to replace it and give them some ideas of what to do. And then for children under the age of 10, their imagination is critically important. In fact, PlaySense, my Play School business, that's exactly what we, we teach children how to use their imaginations because we know that um, a lot of the soft skills for the future are based on imagination. So help your little one to start up an imaginary game, like tell them to set up school school in the lounge or whatever it is, you know, or make a bakery and they can bake and then they can sell the, the cookies or whatever it is. So, you know, give them little nuggets of things that they can actually do. Mm. Okay, we've got a voice note that's come through. Hi, guys. Thank you for this conversation. Um, I do agree with your points um, with regard to screens. Um, A couple of weeks back, my wife and I made uh, the decision of taking the iPad away from our uh, three-year-old 
and his mood has been so much better. His sleeping patterns have been so much better. Um, granted, he wasn't playing games. He was just watching YouTube. But still, just so much better. When you take the screen away, he eats better. He sleeps better. It is just a, a lot better. There is a place, time and place, for screens. And we use that. We give him a reward with, with the iPad. Thank you. Thank you so much for that voice note. Meg, your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And you know, uh, that I see that in my practice. I mean, I actually had a child who was referred to me once who was a query autism child. So they thought that the child wasn't socially interacting and they wanted to know if the child was on the spectrum. Now, the child was nine months old. And the very first thing that we did was actually take away the screen because he was using a specific TV program. It was the Night Garden on, on YouTube and was watching that repeatedly. When we took that away from that child, he changed overnight, literally. I mean, he actually did end up being on the spectrum long-term anyway, Mm. on the autism spectrum anyway, but... It was a very, very different scenario once we'd removed, once we'd gone cold turkey with him. And, you know, I think that the, the caller there or the voice note really does point that out, that they, their little one was able to eat better, sleep better, and will develop better. Um, and those are kind of, for me, the four main aspects that we have a look at when we look at little ones, um, you, know, you know, that kind of development, sleep, feeding, and then their health in general. All right. So the app that you can get is called Parent Sense. You can get it on the App Store, Google Play Store, and that's what's been found an ECD program for two to four-year-olds. There's also books that you can get, Baby Sense and Weaning Sense. And, of course, you've got a company called Baby Sense Company. How can people get in touch with you? So they can go onto my website, which is megfora.com, and on the website there you'll actually find access to all of that. Um, or you can go onto the App Store and have a look for the Parent Sense app, and that's both on the um, on iOS and on Android. And the app covers those four domains. So we have a look at how, you know, what activities can you do day by day? We've got 365 activities built into the app that the mom can then do with their little one that will enhance their development. So if the moms don't know what to do and that's why they're using the technology, the app will give them those ideas. Um, and then it also has meal plans, routines for, um, for sleeps. And then it also has a recipe for every single meal throughout the first year of life. So the app, which is called Parent Sense, is really probably the best way to go about it. And we actually have got a, and we, we actually would offer parents, if they go onto our website, which is parentsense.app, which is the website where you can actually get the app as well. Um, and they use the code 702. We're going to give them a discount of 25% on the app. That um, is, if they go and that, do that is absolutely amazing. And for is spelled F-A-U-R-E, Meg for childcare expert and best-selling parenting author.